Hello, my friends. Today, I take you through a Bank of Canada report. Now, before you click away, it's not as boring as it sounds. They study Trudeau's massive immigration spike and tell us how much that's doing to raise the price of housing. This is from the government itself. I'll take you through it and show you an amazing graph. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. I want you to get the video version. I want you to see this shocking graph in this Bank of Canada report about immigration levels under Trudeau. You need to see it to believe it. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe, eight bucks a month, and you get the video version. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, the Bank of Canada says what we already knew. Trudeau's immigration plans are jacking up housing prices. It's December 18th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. Immigration in Canada is out of control. I've got a graph I'm going to show you that is the most shocking thing I've ever seen on the subject. And the graph is not from some anti-immigration think tank. I don't think there is an anti-immigration think tank in Canada. It's a graph from the Bank of Canada in a study written by 12 authors trying to assess the impact of Justin Trudeau's mass immigration platform on things like housing prices. It's sort of obvious, supply and demand. If you bring in more than a million newcomers a year, and someone, everyone's got to live somewhere, it's obviously going to push up housing prices. It's also a reason we see shocking images like this footage. This is not taken in LA's Skid Row. This is not some refugee camp in Europe. This apparently is Kelowna. British Columbia. I've never seen such a thing before in Canada. That is U.S.-style homelessness. And I don't say U.S.-style as some insult. It's just a massive fact of life that it's the homelessness on the streets, especially in Democrat cities in the U.S. It's come to Canada now. In many other cities, you have three, four, five families jammed into one home. That's the only way to make it affordable. But Trudeau doesn't let up. It is true that bringing in a million people a year or more into Canada does increase the GDP. I mean, all those people do have to live somewhere, eat somewhere, drive something. But it's lowering our per capita GDP. In fact, I think one of the reasons why Trudeau jacks up immigration so much, besides the obvious political reasons, is to mask the fact that on a per capita basis, we're actually getting poorer. What I'm saying is the per capita GDP in Canada is going down. But because Trudeau is bringing in a million newcomers a year, that masks that effect. We are in a recession in Canada. Immigration helps Trudeau hide that. There's obviously other consequences to mass immigration. Did you see this shocking footage from a mall? I think this mall was in uh, the Eaton Centre in Toronto over the weekend. Here is a foreign man, I'm judging by the accent, uh, masked uh, in Hamas attire, threatening to put a cop six feet under. Did you see this video footage? Take a look. Do you believe Palestinians deserve freedom? You come near me, I'll put your leg down on the floor. I'll lay you sleep. I'll put you six feet deep. I'll put you six feet deep. 
see, there's the quantity of immigration and there's the quality. And by that, I mean, do we allow people in without any sort of values test? If you've seen the streets across Canada this past two months, they are swelling with people who are chanting for death to Israel, death to the Jews, depending on how careful they are about what they mean. You've seen protests outside Jewish-owned stores like Jewish restaurants in Toronto. What's that got to do with the battle over in Israel or the Jewish bookstore? <laughs> the craziest are these protests outside a store called Zara, Z-A-R-A. Have you ever heard of that store? I bet you have, especially the women in the audience. It's a women's fashion store. It is actually the large, one of the largest uh, clothing retailers, retailers in the world. It's got nothing to do with Jews or Israel. It is a Spanish company headquartered in Spain. The founders are good Spanish Catholics. I think maybe because Zara sounds like it could be an Israeli name. These morons are protesting out front of it. Take a look. They protest outside Starbucks, too, although I understand there are no Starbucks in Israel. Uh, so what? There are uh, the, uh, the CEO of Starbucks is Jewish and some of the workers are. So better protest against it. Take a look at this. That's so crazy. Oh, see that? <gasps> That's so loud. Uh-uh. Well, when I was in London recently, I, they were protesting outside McDonald's. I really don't know what McDonald's has to do with Jews, but again, it's really just about chaos and disruption and uh, showing who's the boss of the streets. This is when I was in London a few weeks ago.
My point is, yes, there are some native Brits and native Canadians who are involved in those protests, but in the main, they are foreign nationals. And as we learned in a global news uh, investigative report, many of them are being orchestrated by the 700 Iranian government agents that work in Canada. These are not natural occurring protests by Canadians. You can tell they're not by Canadians. These are foreign-funded, foreign-directed protests in support of a foreign terrorist group. And so far they've found they can say and do literally anything in Canada, including telling police they'll be six feet under, and the police, well, they don't do a thing. I tell you, if Adam Skelly from Adamson's Barbecue simply had a keffiyeh on instead of a ball cap, the police would have never sent 100 cops and riot horses to shut down his restaurant. Remember that? Yeah, what do you think would have happened to the trucker convoy if they would have told the cop they'd be six feet under? They would have been arrested and probably shot. But this pro-Hamas terrorist supporter, oh, the cops are his escort. Anyhow, those are some of the qualitative aspects of unbridled, unlimited, unqualified immigration. But what about the quantifiable aspect? By that, I mean, when you add a million plus people to the country every year, what does that do to the ability of anyone, including those newcomers, to find a house? Well, I have in my hand here a study done by the Bank of Canada and released just about a week ago. The study is called Assessing the Effects of Higher Immigration on the Canadian Economy and Inflation. That's a good subject for a study. And you can see there are not one, not two, but 12 different economists and other experts who co-authored this study. I'm going to walk you through it now. I'm, I'm not going to go through all of it. Don't worry. Some of it's sort of dry and some of it is on other subjects. But let me read to you from the introduction. The rise in immigration is nonetheless contributing to pressures in inflation components linked to house prices, given that it is adding more to housing demand than to housing supply in the context of structural imbalances in the Canadian housing market. Let me translate for you. Bringing a million people a year into Canada makes it uh, more competition for houses and, of course, supply and demand. If you can't add a million people worth of houses a year, uh, those who are on the ground are going to bid up houses. And now Canada is one of the most high real estate bubbles in the world. It reminds me of Pierre Polyev's 15-minute infomercial the other day the one that had millions of views, it's true. And you can just contrast houses on either side of the Canada-US border, and for example, Niagara Falls. Remember this clip from Pierre Polyev's video? Eight years ago, payments on an average single detached home cost roughly 40% of median family income. Now, that number is 66%, meaning that paychecks have not caught up with the cost of housing. And we can't blame the rest of the world. Canada's housing costs have risen faster and higher than almost any other country on Earth. Depending on how and when you measure it, Canada's housing costs are on average 45 to 75 percent higher than in the United States. In border towns, it's even more. 
Homes on the Canadian side are often 100% more expensive than their American counterparts. Look at this home in Niagara, Canada versus this home in Niagara, New York. Only about a half an hour apart from one another. What's the difference between uh, New York's Niagara Falls and Ontario's Niagara Falls? Well, one of them has a million people a year coming to it. I think the most interesting thing in this entire study is the graph on page two of the study. Is just take a look at that. Look, you can see that immigration fell during the lockdowns. But look at that staggering cliff that has come up afterwards. Rising immigration and shifting composition. The chart is called Newcomers Drive Canada's Population Growth. 1.2 million people last year. 1.2 million. Not a quarter million, not 300,000 as is typically been. 1.2 million. As in, And you can see from the red, that stands for NPR, stands for non-permanent residence. So in one year alone, about 700,000 non-permanent residents came to Canada on top of about 450,000 permanent residents. Births, less deaths, you can see the net birth rate in Canada has plunged, approaching zero. But of course, if the pandemic didn't get you, taxes and the inability to buy a house will. Trudeau has made it impossible to form a family and start a life. How can you do that if you don't have the money to buy your own house and you're living in your parents' place till you're 40? So natural births in Canada have plunged under Trudeau. It used to be over 100,000 a year. Now it's approaching zero. But don't you worry. Um, he will bring in 1.2 million foreign people in a year. Let me quote. Newcomers have driven most of the increase with the largest rise among non-permanent residents, NPRs, who now represent about 60% of immigration into Canada. This group reflects a mix of students, low and high-skilled temporary workers, and asylum seekers, and increases have been large across all NPR categories. And then they break it down on page three, and I'm going to go through this because it's just so astonishing, these numbers. And I ask you, is there a single parliament, a single MP in all of parliament or senator who's even talking about this? By the way, Pierre Polyev does not. So you can see there uh, on page three now, chart two is called increased newcomer inflows are driven by non-permanent residents. And you can see the blue is 2019, the last year before the pandemic. And then the red is 2022. I'm sure it was even higher last year. So non-permanent residents... That's the red line. That's about 1.4 million. That's what that that's what that graph says, which is almost double what it was the year before. Permanent residents are still up over 400,000. That is, I don't even know how that. I mean, and if you add both of those numbers together, you're coming close to two million. I don't even understand how this chart can make sense. Two million. You can see the work permits. 600,000 work permits. Almost 600,000 study permits. So you've got 600,000 foreign nationals coming to Canada to study in our universities. If you're a Canadian who has paid taxes your whole life, expecting that your kids will go to University of British Columbia or University of Alberta or McGill or Queens or Western or Dalhousie or University, any university, if you have saved up and you got your kids to get good marks, guess what? 600,000 thousand foreign nationals 
are competing to do the same thing, drive up tuition, drive up the cost of housing on campus, and drive up the requirements to get into school. You built these universities through your taxes. You paid into these universities for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Now your child or grandchild is going to university. Tough luck. There are 600,000 foreign nationals ahead of them in line. How does that make any sense? Study permits, almost 600,000. And then you can see permanent residents. There's economic permanent residents and non-economic permanent residents. There's, a, there's almost 200,000 people coming here who have no add nothing to the economy, but they're just here. They're just in line also. These are staggering numbers. You can see um, the asylum seekers. If you, if you look down on the second chart there, you see NPR other, that's non-permanent residence other. So there's about 100,000 asylum seekers this year. That's up from 100,000 asylum seekers. How are they getting here? Well, about 50,000 a year or whatever the number is, of not quite that many a year crossed over from the United States. So by definition, you not you know they're not real refugees. If you've come here from another safe country, by the UN definition of a refugee, you are not a refugee. You have an obligation to make your refugee claim in the first place you get to. And if you're coming from Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever you're coming from, Odds are you didn't fly from Damascus to Toronto, and I know that because there is no flight from Damascus to Toronto. You went somewhere else first, but you came on to Canada because you knew we were suckers. And you can see there's an incredible statistic uh, there. It's C-U-A-E-T, which stands for the Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel. So there are almost 200,000 Ukrainians who have come to Canada in 2022 alone. I don't know how many of them are military-aged men who chose not to fight in Ukraine. And by the way, I don't blame them. I mean, it's been a terrible meat grinder, a terrible war. There are hundreds of thousands dead. Millions of Ukrainians have fled. And by the way, I don't doubt that of, of all the migrants to Canada, they're in some ways the most assimilated. But still, when you add almost, uh, almost 200,000 Ukrainians to the other number. That's how you get to 1.4 million people. That's why housing is so expensive. And I have seen with my own eyes homeless people from Ukraine in the streets of Canada. I suppose that's better than being killed by Russia. But I'm not sure if Trudeau is keeping his promises even to these foreign nationals. If you look underneath that, there's a chart called economic PR. That's economic permanent uh, permanent residents. The high-skilled number about 80,000. And you'll notice that number really hasn't grown over 2019. About 80,000 people are highly skilled. You know, a very small number have Canadian experience. What I'm saying to you is if Trudeau says these are doctors and accountants and scientists, yeah, no, no, they're not. Far less than 10% of the people Trudeau is bringing in are highly skilled. The rest of them are here to take houses, though. They all need houses. I'm going to uh, move ahead to page 10 now when it talks about the economic impact on housing because I wanted to show you that that chart is the most astonishing chart I have seen. And if I published a daily newspaper, that chart would be on the front page. That is the reason you cannot get into an emergency room in a hospital. 
get into a university, get through the traffic. You bring 1.4 million people into Canada in one year, of course that's going to be the fact, the, the fallout. And of course you're going to have <laughs> so many thousands of pro-Hamas chanters in the street because you're indiscriminately bringing people to Canada who don't have the skills other than skills of agitating. I'm going to read from page 10 here on housing. A rise in immigration to Canada may contribute more to housing imbalances than found in studies of other countries. This is because Canada already has imbalances between its housing supply and demand, and because relatively few newcomers join the construction industry. In other words, we already were short of housing. And then in the face of that, Trudeau decided to bring 1.4 million newcomers in. So it's worse than any other country that these scientists can find. And of course, we know that's true because of the comparison on both sides of uh, Niagara Falls. Let me read a little bit more from page 11. The imbalance between housing demand and supply has risen steeply. Well, that's why the prices have shot up. That's why no one can afford it. In the five years preceding the pandemic outbreak, net new household formation, also known as demographic demand, modestly outpaced the construction of new homes. That means a husband and wife getting married and move out on their own. That's what they mean by demographic demand. You make a household. You need a place to live now because you're not living with your parents or your roommates. However, over the past year, the gap between demand and supply surged. Altogether, Canada would need just over 200,000 additional homes to close the gap between housing demand and, and supply that has grown since 2015. This is equivalent to around 10 months of housing starts compared with two and a half months in 2019. But that's just uh, to take care of the newcomers. But Trudeau's planning to do this again next year. And he's planning to do it again the next year. And Pierre Polyev still hasn't spoken out about it, has he? And of course, these people are not working in construction. We're not bringing home builders. We're bringing non-permanent residents, many of them low-skilled. We're bringing Tim Hortons workers. But even they need a place to live. I want to show you chart number seven on page 12, because that talks about this demographic demand. Again, demographic demand is just a fancy economist way of saying a man and a woman get together and they want their own household now. That's that orange line. You can see demographic demand fell during the lockdowns. Families were not being formed. We, we will not know for years the demographic and health and social devastation caused by the lockdowns. I already showed you how natural birth in this country is approaching zero. And I blame in part the lockdowns for that. You can see demographic demand for new housing in 2021 was extremely low. But then Trudeau decided to open up our borders to anyone who wants to come, including to Hamas supporters. And it has almost quadrupled the demographic demand, that is people starting households since the depth of the pandemic. During the pandemic, it was less than 150,000 new homes. Now it's 550,000. Let me read the note from The Economist. Some of these pressures are evident in the inflation data. You don't say, eh? The decline in house prices in the current monetary policy tightening cycle has been less than would have been expected based on previous episodes. And shelter inflation is expected to contribute meaningfully to inflation over 2024 and 2025. Let me explain what that means. The Bank of Canada is trying to cool off the housing market by, rack, by raising interest rates. They're trying to make people less likely to buy a house to reduce the prices of that uh, by making it so expensive to get a mortgage. But because there's so, so many people who need houses, 
that even jacking up interest rates is not stopping the demand. How could it? You dumped 1.4 million people into the country. They need a place to live. So they're just paying more and more interest rates. That's why inflation is going to continue for the next two years. I just quoted the, the, the Bank of Canada. Um, let me close by citing page 14 underneath the heading Implications for Inflation. If you're wondering where inflation comes from, it's coming from a lot of places. It's coming from the fact that Trudeau has just printed hundreds of billions of dollars, which has devalued your money. So it's, it's almost like adding counterfeit money to the pool. So your real money has less purchasing power because there's all these fake Trudeau bucks circulating. So you need more money to buy the things you used to have. He's also raising carbon taxes on everything. So everything is more expensive, especially food. But housing is a significant part of inflation because it's one of the most expensive things we buy. Whether it's a mortgage or a rent payment. Let me close by citing page 14 of this study. A more significant inflationary risk appears when it comes to housing. Given chronic labor shortages in the construction sector, low levels of employment by newcomers in construction, and increased housing demand by newcomers relative to supply. Duh. If this imbalance continues to add to the existing structural challenges facing housing construction in Canada, then housing-related components of the Consumer Price Index could see additional upside pressure. In other words, the price of houses are, are going to still go up. They say there's a lack of people in construction. I believe it. But there simply couldn't be enough people to build houses for a million plus people a year. And yet Trudeau insists on doing that. I watched Pierre Polyev's 15-minute uh, uh, infomercial, and he had a few good points, and he talked about printing money, and he talked about inflation and things, and he was exactly right. But if you are not willing to talk about immigration and the vast numbers of people who are coming into this country, you will never solve the housing pricing issue. You will cause damage to our health and education systems, to traffic, to crime, to homelessness, and as we've seen in the streets of this country, to cultural fit. Until someone in this country has the courage to talk about immigration reform, these problems simply won't go away. If you look at the solution that Pierre Paglia proposed in his 15-minute video, one of his solutions was to build basically high-density apartment complexes. That's not the Canadian dream. I want to live in a condo. That's where you move when you're young and single, maybe where you go if you're one of these non-permanent residents coming to Canada, the 600,000 coming to be students. But the Canadian dream, like the American dream, is to have a house with a backyard and to have a little bit of space, a space to call your own. That will never happen if we keep bringing in a million plus people when just a few years ago a quarter million was considered an extraordinary number. Until the Conservative Party of Canada has the courage to tackle this, the problem will not go away. Stay with us. More ahead. Well, some of the largest protests since the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel have been, not surprisingly, in the largest cities in Toronto and Montreal. In fact, there have been some uh, cases of violence in those cities. We saw, for example, Molotov cocktails and gunfire in Montreal. Calgary is a smaller city, but they have had fairly intense protests every weekend. I would call them 
dueling protests on one side of McLeod Trail in that city are the pro-Palestinian protesters. On the other side, the pro-Israel protesters and the police in the middle trying to separate them most of the time. There have been some arrests. Well, we've done our best to provide on-the-scene journalism. And this weekend, one of our web writers, Alex Dollywall, was there doing some video journalism. What a pleasure to have him report from Calgary today. And Alex joins me. Alex, great to see you again. Thanks for going out over the weekend. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show, Ezra. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, you brought a few video clips with you. Um, I know Calgary pretty well. I was born and raised there, but I haven't been there lately, and I have not seen these dueling protests. Is that how you would describe them? On one side, right outside the city hall, is the pro-Palestinian protesters, and then across the street in Olympic Plaza are the pro-Israel protesters. Is that sort of the, the scenario every weekend? Exactly. So typically since the October 7th massacre by Hamas terrorists in Israel, uh, we've seen uh, pro, uh, anti-Israel protesters on one side and we've seen uh, Jewish uh, supporters of the Jewish state on the other. But on Sunday um, in downtown Calgary, it was just a, a protest involving uh, anti-Israeli um, I, I guess I would say anti-Israeli protesters and some uh, make the case that they're agitators as well, uh, where they were uh, commenting on the fact that they want Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to end any and all support uh, for what they refer to as the Israeli occupation. And, you know, they, they're basically saying that uh, Canadian tax dollars should not be aiding and abetting um, the Jewish state of Israel yet. Uh, they, uh, the anti-Israeli supporters, refuse to acknowledge any of the uh, overwhelming concerns that a lot of Jewish Canadians and a lot of uh, Jews across the world have, which is the fact that um, those within the Islamic community ref refuse in large part to hold Hamas accountable for the atrocities they committed two months ago. Here, and it, we saw oh, more Monday. Sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you. Yeah, we saw I know you brought with you three clips. Uh, let's play the first one, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Here, let's take a look at what it was like this weekend. Justin Trudeau, you can't hide. Justin Trudeau, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. We charge you with genocide. Justin Trudeau, you can't hide. Justin Trudeau, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. We charge you with genocide. Now, that's a bit of a surprise to me because just last week, Justin Trudeau broke with Canada's tradition of either being pro-Israel or abstaining at the United Nations and signing on to a vote widely seen as being lopsided towards Hamas, um, calling for an immediate ceasefire by Israel, not mentioning Hamas by name and not calling Hamas a terrorist group. Uh, why? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, Justin Trudeau just went further down that road, the pro-Hamas road, than he ever has before. First of all, I understand how so many people across this country are grieving, are angry, are, are you know, worried about this unfolding humanitarian catastrophe. That is why, as a government, we're continuing to call for immediate humanitarian pauses to be able to flow in aid, to get people out to safety, 
uh, to start uh, doing everything we can to protect civilian life. These are things that we're continuing for, and that's why we're also working with our international partners towards an urgent ceasefire. We know that is important, but that ceasefire can't be one-sided. Do these protesters think they can get more from him? Are they just going to protest no matter what? I mean, it, I would be thinking seriously that they would be thanking him. What do you make of that? You know, it's on uh, the the reality is this that um, I don't think, uh, or large part, I don't think that the protesters um, know exactly what it is that they are truly espousing, which is when they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What they're essentially saying here is that they reject entirely um, any attempts at Jewish self-determination. And, you know, as a uh, Muslim uh, Canadian myself, I recognize the importance to uh, encourage all groups, whether it's on the basis of civic unity or on the basis of um, ethnicity, religion, to form um, their own uh, state as they so wish to. But the unfortunate reality is that um, they want to engage in free speech um, and chant and support whatever cause they want to, yet they are not hell-bent on or they do not actually want to go through the rigors of uh, seeking a compromise, which is important in democracy. What they want is they want to get their way and they will, in some cases we've seen um, in the past couple months, where they will actually utter threats of violence. And in some cases, what we've seen in uh, the schools in Toronto and in the uh, greater Toronto area is where there are viable threats that are issued towards uh, Jewish Canadians as well. And so it's rather unfortunate that rather than, you know, trying to uh, seek justice uh, for uh, any innocent non-combatants that are killed in the crossfire, what they want is to completely ignore the fact of what led us uh, to these events. Israel didn't just stop start dropping bombs just because uh, of uh, they so, uh, their so-called hatred for Palestinians. In fact, that's not the case at all. What they want is to seek justice against the Hamas terrorists, not militants, harassed ter Hamas terrorists for slaughtering, raping, and killing over 1,200 uh, Israeli citizens, Jews, and other foreign nationals. And I haven't heard from many within the community um, their direct opposition to the events that led up to the military campaign in Gaza. It, it's as if they want to uh, completely, completely disregard the facts on the ground and they just want to push a narrative that suits their cause, which in my opinion is just to pursue a very radicalized form of Islam that uh, we've, we are seeing in real time uh, across Europe and in parts of uh, Canada and the US really wrecking havoc with the cult, uh, the unity amongst different groups here in the West. So thanking Hamas, thanking Iran, that's pretty brazen. Um, let me ask you this. What was the reaction from, I, I guess, nonpartisan or uninvolved 
Calgarians. I mean, that's right downtown. And, uh, and I'm guessing there was some normal pedestrian traffic, not the pro and the con sides. Um, how is this being received? Because I know that this has been going on for a couple of months now, these, these protests. Are, are Calgarians engrossed by this? Are the crowds dwindling as it gets colder? What's the reaction from the city at large? You know, I, I think in particular, ever since uh, uh, Calgary's mayor, Jody Gondak, made the cowardly decision uh, not to uh, attend a the celebration, uh, Jewish celebration of Hanukkah recently, um, what we've seen is that uh, some of the local politicians are trying to, um, you know, court votes on uh, trying to maintain support on both sides while uh, without um, trying to... Uh, lose any support from what we can unequivocally refer to as the anti-Israel, pro-Hamas supporters. And so since then, what we've seen in Calgary is several dueling protests. But I think as the weather gets colder, you're going to start to see lesser turnout, which is, of course, typical. But from the what I saw on the ground was that, and this is perhaps most concerning, is that uh, most people um, yesterday uh, did not seem um, unbothered by some of the rhetoric that was being spewed. Other, maybe perhaps because they were just going about their day and busy. But the fact that there's not a larger, um, I guess, reaction to this, a negative reaction to the rhetoric that's being uh, uh, pushed is concerning because you would expect to see this in a more destabilized um, quasi-democratic state or a theocracy rather than a liberal dem dem democracy such as Canada. And so um, the concern is there. And I think as we start to see more clips and more uh, reaction from the anti-Israeli protesters, where they become more unhinged and where they issue uh, death threats, which they did not in uh, on Sunday. But when we start to see them become more emboldened in their aggression, I, I think we'll start to see more Canadians speak out about, uh, against this, which is, which I hope is the case uh, moving forward, because it does not seem that the protesters are going to um, quiet down in any way. Hmm. Alex, great to catch up with you. Thanks very much for going out there, and thanks for your comments. Uh, you're part of our Rebel team. We have people from every background at Rebel News, and I appreciate your comments, and I know you're a proud Muslim Canadian, and I thank you for your journalism with Rebel News. Thank you. Okay. There you have it. Alex Dhaliwal from Calgary. Stay with us. Your letters to me next. Well, that's our Alex Dhaliwal, who's one of our team of 45 rebels across the country. And as he mentioned, he's a Muslim Canadian who does not believe in the extremism he sees at these pro-Hamas rallies. It's nice to have him on the team. And it's tough because, of course, um, there, there's, I would imagine it's tough because there is peer pressure from these bullies on the streets. They go after Adam Sos. They go after Drea Humphrey. They go after David Menzies. And indeed, they go after Alex Dhaliwal as well because we tell the other side of the story. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom.